0: Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, that's our text for this morning. The 911 call crackled across the radio at about 9.30 p.m. on Saturday, August 13th, 2016. As Eastman police officer Tim Smith patrolled his small middle Georgia town, a man had pulled a gun on someone near the intersection of Main Street. On the lookout, Smith passed a man on foot matching the description of the suspect, and so instinctively he illuminated his patrol car lights and turned his vehicle around. As Smith approached the suspect from the confines of his vehicle, he told the suspect to place his hands on the hood of his patrol car so they could talk for a few minutes. And as Smith exited his patrol car, the suspect, according to police, pulled a gun and fired a single shot that struck Smith in the chest father of three young children, died at the hospital later that night, just two days before his 31st birthday. Unfortunately, a critical item that had been issued to Officer Smith sat unused in the front floorboard of his police cruiser. That item, his city-issued bulletproof vest. I'm very thankful for the men and women who risked their own lives to protect and serve us on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, I shook hands with a couple of them this morning in the lobby, very grateful for each and every one of you. My sharing that story this morning is in no way intended to make light of or, or to critique Officer Smith in any way, shape, or form. But I do think that story illustrates the spiritual realities that Paul is communicating to us in our text for this morning. You see, just like every police officer readies himself or, her, or herself for work by putting on his or her armament, so we as believers are called to put on the full armor of God. That we might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Warren Wearsby once said this. He said, Sooner or later, you can mark these words, they're good as gold. Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground, and that he or she faces an enemy much stronger than he is apart from the Lord. With that, by way of some brief introduction this morning, let me encourage you to stand with us if you have the ability. Turning our attention to our text for this morning, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, pins the following words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood Early on in our chapter of Ephesians, I noted that Paul's letter could be broken down or could be divided into three very clear parts. These may ring a familiar bell to you. Chapters 1 through 3, Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3, they deal with the believer's wealth. What Paul uh, undertook to, to help us understand in those verses was, was our our critical position in Christ, they were very doctrinally focused. Those were the foundation chapters. If, if we don't get Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3 well, then we will miss everything else or we will misapply everything else that Paul says beginning in chapter 4 through the end of his letter. Ephesians chapter, three, or chapter 1 through chapter 3, Paul focused on the believer's wealth. It's doctrine. It's our position in Christ. It's what God has done for us beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 and spanning all the way through chapter 6 verse 9 that's where we left off last in Ephesians Paul focused there on the believers walk well first walk second in other words in light of all God has done for you in light of all God has provi- has provided for you now live or walk this way you see that's to be the motivation What God has done for you and me in Christ is to be the motivation for our practice. It's to be the motivation for our walk with Christ. It's to answer the why question, why we do what we do, because God has done what he has done for us. The believers, wealth first. The believers, walk second. And then beginning in our text for this morning, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, really through the end of the letter, Paul takes up the issue of the believer's warfare. The believer's warfare. Life is war. Just like Warren Wiersbe said, sooner or later, every believer comes to the point where he or she realizes that life is not a playground. It's a battleground. It's a battleground. Paul tells us in our text for this morning that there are are forces, that, that Satan would love to trip you up. He's a schemer. He's the evil one. Are you prepared for such a battle? Just like no police officer goes to work without putting on his or her armament, just like no soldier goes to battle without all the artillery of war and a battle plan ready for war, so we as believers in a cosmic war should be ready, should be armed. How do we prepare ourselves for the battlefield of the Christian life? Point number one on your outline this morning, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. You'll listen much better if you do. Number one is this. Be strong in God's strength. What's plan number one? What must I do first of all? Well, Paul tells us here in our text. He says, be strong in God's strength. Finally, be strong. Some uh, translations would, would enter the word brethren there or brothers. Finally, be strong, brothers, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But notice the concluding language again that Paul uses here as he opens verse 10. He says, finally, finally. You see, Ephesians 6, 10 through 21 is not only the conclusion of Paul's letter, but it's the climax of Paul's letter. Everything that Paul has said from his opening words in Ephesians chapter 1, moving to this point, have brought us to the great crescendo that opens here in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul has spoken at length about our position in Christ. He's laid the foundation for our practice or our worthy walk. If you can remember back to chapter 4, Paul encouraged us or he exhorted us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You doing that, friends? Are we walking in a manner worthy of our great high king, the one who stands there in victory for us? Now Paul points us to the battlefield. His train of thought looks something like this. When when, when you see the word finally there in verse 10, uh, Paul's train of thought looks a little something like this. Finally, that is in, in light of all the spiritual blessings you have in Christ, in light of the glorious standing that you have as an adopted son or daughter, in light of the deposit of the promised Holy Spirit. In light of the riches of the glorious inheritance to which you've been called. In light of you being saved by grace through faith. In light of God's great plan of the ages that he's made you a part of. In light of the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. In light of the fact that you've been filled with all the fullness of God. In light of the plan for Christian maturity and growth that God gives to you here in Ephesians. In light Of the conduct that is, if you're a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or a slave or a master that God calls every believer to live in light of all this and more, finally, there's a battle now. There's a battle to be fought. There's a war to be waged, to be waged in the Christian life. But you need to know everything else prior. In light of this battle, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 10 there in your Bible, it's actually a passive imperative in the original language. Here's, here's simply what that means. It means that it could be better translated this way. And if you have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a Southern Baptist translation, it's a faithful translation, if you've got that translation in front of you, you'll have this better translation of the text. But it's a passive imperative. Here's, here's what it means. It means it could be better translated as be made strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be made strong in the strength of the Lord and in the power of His might. You see, that corresponds back to Paul's prayer in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul prays that, that, that God might grant us to be strengthened, to be strengthened with all His power through His Spirit in our inner being. Paul's calling us, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What's Paul saying on the onset here? What's what's, what's Paul getting at? What's he trying to communicate to us? What's the takeaway? What's the sticky thought? What does he want us to leave with as a result of verse 10? Well, I think it's this. I think that Paul's saying here on the onset, I think he's reinforcing the fact that we as believers do not empower ourselves. We're bankrupt as far as power is concerned, in and of ourselves, in and of our own flesh. Apart from divine resources, we're completely incapable of living out the Christian life. I mean, Jesus said that, did he not, in John fifteen five, when he said, I'm the vine. You, my friends, are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, finish the sentence, you can do nothing. But apart from me, you can do nothing. But at the same time, A Christian in close fellowship with Christ has all the power that he or she needs. As a matter of fact, the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead back in Ephesians has been given to you. You have all the power you need because of what Christ has done for you to victoriously live out the Christian life. Can't do it on your own. Don't even try. You're destined for failure. But in Christ, with all of his divine resources, you have everything that you need to live the, quote, victorious Christian life, to live a life that pleases and honors Christ, to live a life that is, that is sinning less and pleasing Christ more. We won't be sinless until we step into glory, but we ought to be growing in sinning less. Should we not? Amen or oh me? Both. For me Sometimes. We ought to be growing and sinning less. We can't do anything on our own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But at the same time, a Christian in close fellowship with Christ has all the power that he or she needs. As a matter of fact, Jesus told Paul this. He said, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Everything you need, my grace is enough. You can't have a need that superabounds my grace. My grace will always superabound your needs. And so, how did Paul reply then? Well, Paul replied, well, then I'll boast all the more of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. You see, while there's no strength in and of our own flesh, we can, we can, capital C, capital A, capital N, we can be a conduit for God's strength running through us. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul prayed that we might know. Well, what what might we know, Paul? Well, here's what he prayed that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Immeasurable, by the way. If you can remember back to that set of messages, I mentioned the fact that we measure everything. You go buy a home, it's measured in square feet. You want to measure the the distance between earth and planets or stars, we we measure that in light years. You want to measure what keeps your feet firmly connected to terra firma, we measure that in, in gravity. Everything that we do, you go buy milk, it's measured in a gallon. You dispense gas, it's measured in gallons. You, you your life is measured in years. Everything we do is measured. But yet Paul says here, speaking about God's power, it's immeasurable. Let that rattle around between your ears for a moment. Now Paul's calling on us. As a result of all the power, all the strength that we have in Christ, all that he secured for us, Paul's calling on us now to appropriate and to walk in that power. In other words, you have it, use it. If you know Christ, you have it, use it, appropriate it, make use of it. But in order to use God's power, you must be made new by God's Son. Let me pause right there. Is that true of you? If you... If you've not been made new by God's Son, then using God's power is irrelevant. Have you been made new by God's Son? Have you become a new creation in Christ? Has the old passed away and behold, all things are new? Is that true of your life? And, and, and is there is there demonstrable fruit that would be an evidence of that? Yes, we're all imperfect, but, but is at least there the, the sprouting or the bud of, of the graces of God evident in your life and mine? I need to be evaluating my life. Am I, am I walking in the Spirit? Am I growing in a sensitivity towards the things of, of God? Am I growing in a corresponding hatred towards sin? Are, are, are my thoughts increasingly heavenward instead of bound or tethered to the things of this fleeting world? Those will be some evidences. You see, the power to live a righteous life is only available to those who have been made righteous in Christ. If that's you, you have all the power to fight sin and to overcome the daily onslaughts of the evil one. All that power is at your disposal. And so Paul says, be strong. Maybe better translated, be made strong. Be made strong in the strength of God's might. Number two, speaking about a battle plan. We must be protected by God's armor. Not only must we be strong in God's strength, but we must be protected by God's armor. Look at verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Friends, that sentence is both a command and a promise. Look back at your Bible for a minute. Verse 11. That sentence, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, it's both a command and a promise. You see, Paul is telling us that if we put on the whole armor of God, we'll take hits in this life, we'll take hits in battle, but we'll stand victorious at the end. In all reality, the the command to put on the full armor of God, what it really does is it gives explanation to the, 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 the how of verse 10. Be strong in the Lord. Well, how? Paul says, "Put on the full armor of God." How do I be strong in the Lord? You put on the full armor of God. It may seem strange that Paul would use weapons and the dress of war to enumerate the qualities befitting of a Christian. Matter of fact, uh, aren't aren't we the ones that are called to be the peacemakers? And here, Paul is using military and combat language of us. Well, if we think that's odd, it's because some of us may have falsely presumed that Christianity is an exit from warfare instead of an entrance into it. Some of us may have falsely presumed that coming to know Christ, that entering into Christianity was an exit from warfare instead of an entrance into it. Jesus told Peter that Satan would love to sift him like weed. And friends, I'll tell you this morning, he'd love to sift you and me like weed as well. He's a formidable foe. He'd love to do anything to mar your witness. He'd love to do anything to make you less effective. He'd love for you to be knocked out of the race or to cause you to defame the name of Christ in any way, shape, or form. He would love that. That would give him great pleasure. Paul wasn't afraid of using combat language to describe the Christian life. As a matter of fact, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says this, he says, For the weapons of our warfare, that's combat language, Paul. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power. That sounds a whole lot like verse 10, doesn't it? We have divine power to destroy strongholds. To Timothy, Paul wrote this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's combat language, friends. And at the end of his life, Paul exclaimed, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Paul was a fighter. He's calling us to be a fighter as well. Where did this imagery of armor, where, where, where do these metaphors come from? Paul says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then Paul's, Paul's going to, over the course of the next uh, handful of verses, Paul's going to enumerate exactly what that armor is. And I'm not going to talk too much about it this morning, because we're going to take the next seven weeks, Lord willing, and we're going to walk through each of those pieces individually and systematically. That's my plan, at least, to take a full week and to talk about each piece of the armor that God enumerates here in Ephesians chapter. Six, But where did this imagery and where, where do these armor metaphors come from? Let me submit to you uh, that it most likely came from two places. Okay, First of all, it probably came from a Roman soldier. Uh, that would have been familiar to everyone. As a matter of fact, Paul was writing this letter from prison, was he not? Probably either within an eye shot, if not physically tethered to a Roman soldier. And so Paul would have looked that guy up from head to toe many, many times a day. He would have seen the the, the particular pieces of equipment that that Roman soldier wore for his job, and then he would have thought, okay, I have a job to do. I'm also to be a warrior. I'm also in battle. I'm also to be fighting a good fight. And all of those pieces of armament began to take on a whole new meaning, and Paul began to relate them to the Christian life, those physical pieces of armor in a spiritual way. But I think second... I think Paul's imagery and these armor metaphors, I think they came from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul, by the way, Paul knew his his Bible, did he not? Go back sometime and and look at Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Paul was a zealous man, trained in the law. He knew the word of God. He would have had it memorized. He was was schooled from, from a young man. And so I think Paul draws back on the scripture that he has memorized in his heart and his mind, which, by the way, let me encourage you to be memorizing portions of God's word. You'll have nothing to call upon if you haven't first hidden it there. Okay? Be memorizing God's word. You'll need it in the day of battle. Just like when Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. I mean, did Satan not walk him out on on the hilltop and said, Listen, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down to me. How did Jesus respond? Oh, stop it. That's nonsense. No, No, that's not the way he responded. He responded by boldly declaring the revealed word of God. He said, No, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is not to be tempted. I think Paul was drawing here from a particular prophecy in Isaiah. Paul knew the scriptures. And this particular prophecy in Isaiah describes the armor of Yahweh and his Messiah. You see, these references in Isaiah, you can find them in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah 59, you can get those later from my notes. But these references in Isaiah depict the Lord of hosts as a valiant warrior dressed for battle, ready to go forth and vindicate his people. You see, the full armor of God which readers are urged to put on as they engage in deadly spiritual warfare is Yahweh's own armor, I think, which he and his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, wore and is now provided to every single believer that they might engage victoriously in battle. I think Paul, Paul gets this imagery from two places. One, he's staring at a Roman soldier. He's making connections, physical connections to the spiritual life. But I think Paul's drawing back even on Old Testament scriptures, which he would have had memorized, that that speak of, Old Testament prophecies that speak of Yahweh as a valiant warrior who dressed himself for battle. See, the armor of God, it can be understood in a few different ways here, I think. It can be understood as the armor that God supplies can be understood as God's own armor that he wears. That would be those Old Testament prophecies. Or even the armor that is God himself. Put on God. Be found in Christ. Be found in his righteousness. Be living on his word, the sword of truth. Be believing in him. Be faithful. Friends, we must be strong in God's Strength. We must be protected by God's armor. What's our third battle plan? Number three, if you're taking notes, is this we must be knowledgeable about our enemy. We must be knowledgeable about our enemy. See, in order to stand a chance against our enemy, the devil, we must know how he works. We must acknowledge how he works. How do we know? Well, we have to go back to Scripture and we have to look at the names he's given, we have to look at the chaos that he has created. You see, we acknowledge this principle of knowledge of our enemy. We acknowledge that principle in competitive sports and in modern warfare. A collegiate and professional coaching staff and players will sit for hours upon hours and watch their opponent's, or opponent's previous game footage so they might learn how their opponent operates so they can formulate both an offensive and a defensive strategy that will work against their opponent. You see, likewise, in our in our military engagements. Our military doesn't engage a threat without a a combat operation plan or a war plan. We don't just aimlessly go into battle. No, we send surveillance ahead of us way before, reconnaissance. We're taking pictures. We're, We're getting to know people. We're sending people over undercover. We're doing all the groundwork so that we can prepare an adequate battle plan, a plan of war. Prior to engagement with our enemies, we study them. We learn their strengths. We learn their weaknesses. Like we must know our physical enemies, we must know our spiritual enemy. Otherwise, you'll be duped every time, and so will I. We must know our enemy. Here's a few things that Paul tells us specifically in the text this morning about our enemy Number one, he's powerful. He's powerful. And he's more powerful than I think you and I probably give him credit for. He's powerful. His power's limited, but he's powerful, more so than you think. Look at verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look back at verse 12 for just a moment. And tell me the word that is repeated four times. I heard somebody say it. Against. Why do you think Paul repeats the word against four times in the same sentence? Because he wants us to know what we're up against. He wants us to know what we're up against. Satan is powerful. Now, Before I say anything else here, it's important to note uh, that we can fall out on on two, two ends of the spectrum that are unhealthy as it pertains to our understanding of, our study of Satan and his ways, or, or his demons and their ways, and how they work. There's, there's, there's two, two ways that we can swing inordinately one way or the other way. The first is that we can disbelieve all things demonic, not giving credence to the power of darkness. Okay? We, we can just dismiss it. It's like, yeah, that's the stuff of, of, of horror movies, that's the stuff of folklore, and we just dismiss it because we can't see it. Well, that's that's not a smart thing to do. God's Word is replete uh, with, with language and imagery that help us understand our foe. But the other thing that we can do that is unhealthy is that we can take up an unhealthy and inordinate fascination and interest in Satan and his host. We don't want to do either one. We don't want to dismiss it, but neither do we want to take up an unhealthy finding Satan under every rock. My car won't start. There must be a demon in the engine. Okay, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, he, he said this, and I think he rightly observed here. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors to which we can fall out concerning the devil. One is to disbelieve his existence, and the other is to believe but yet to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. They, he's speaking of the devil and his host now, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. He'd be greatly pleased if you just dismissed all things demonic, but he'd be greatly pleased if you took up an unhealthy, inordinate interest in things demonic as well. So, a word of caution here, okay? A word of caution. I want you to notice three things about our battle from verse 12. Notice first that the battle is Personal. Paul says that that we wrestle against, not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. We wrestle. Uh, That word there, translated in the original Greek language, has the idea of hand-to-hand combat. Uh, It's like man-to-man, put up your dukes kind of language. It's it's hand-to-hand combat. Fist fighting uh, is is the word there for for wrestle. It's a a personal battle. Uh, Secondly, notice it's a supernatural battle. Paul says that we we don't wrestle against flesh and blood again, but we, we wrestle against powers and authorities and forces. And then third, I want you to notice, and we've said this already, is that the battle is futile if we try to fight or try to win it in our own flesh. We're involved in a superhuman battle, which conventional tactics will avail us nothing. As you look at verse 12 there in your Bible, you see it's a personal battle. We're wrestling it's a supernatural battle. It's not against flesh and blood. And it's a futile battle if we try to engage it in our own strength. You see, straightness is a strong enemy. Foolish are we if we underestimate his power. Jesus, I'm sorry, not Jesus, John uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 12 didn't, didn't call him a dragon arbitrarily. Look at the nouns that Paul uses to describe the devil and his demonic hosts. He calls them rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Speaking about our demonic enemy, John wrote this in 1 John chapter 5. He said, we know that we are from God, but the whole world, John says, lies in the power of the evil one. Paul tells us this, he says, The God of this world, speaking about Satan, lowercase g, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Uh, Just back a handful of chapters ago, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, at this present hour, Satan rules with a lowercase r, this present world. Now, he's like a leashed dog, Okay, he's, he's not omnipotent, he's not uh, omnipresent, okay? he's not omniscient, he doesn't have complete control, complete power, everything that he does is under is, is subject to God. Think back to, to Job, how, how Satan came and asked, can, can I tempt your servant Job? A good picture there of the authority, the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ over Satan. Satan rules with a lowercase r this present world and this present hour. You know, It was Satan who was instrumental in engineering the fall of humankind into sin and death. It was Satan who did his best to seduce Jesus through various temptations, hoping to hinder or prevent his saving, redeeming work. It was Satan who, according to Jesus himself, snatches away the seed. That's the word of God attempting to keep people from believing. It's Satan who blinds the minds and blinds the eyes of men and women to keep them from clearly seeing the truth of God. Satan's been referred to as the tempter, the murderer, the liar, a roaring lion seeking his prey, the serpent back in Genesis chapter 3, an angel of light, the God of this age. But what is our modern-day view of Satan? Satan. What is our modern day view of Satan? Maybe not yours, but our culture's modern day view of Satan. It's a little red man in spandex with a tail and horns. That's no foe. I mean, our culture would tell you get over that. If if that's your enemy, you got problems. Okay, we, we got hungry mouths to feed, social justice issues have to be tackled, and you're over here worried about the, the, the man in spandex? That's not the picture of Satan that God's word gives us. He's much more powerful than you think. Secondly, be on your outline. He schemes. Paul tells us that. He schemes. Look back at verse 11. Backtrack just a little bit. Paul says that that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, not only is Satan strong... But he's also wise. Not only is he strong, but he's also wise. Paul tells us that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, The word schemes, there, by the way, it's the Greek word methodia, it's where we get our English word methods from. He has many methods, carries the idea of craftiness or trickery or cunning or deceit or even the idea of lying in wait. Like a lion crouching in the open plains for its prey, so Satan is crafty in his attacks. And we cannot afford to be ignorant of his operations. We can't afford to be ignorant of his ways. He schemes. Some translations, I think if you've got a King James Bible on your lap there, or if you've got a translation that came from the Revised Standard, your translation might say, "wiles," The wiles of Satan. Satan's intelligent. He doesn't always attack directly. He doesn't always attack in the same ways. He uses a variety of times and a myriad of methods. He's a wily foe, cunning, crafty, deceitful, lying in wait. He schemes. What are some of his schemes, you ask? I was thinking through this this week in my study. A couple of these you may have already mentioned in in verses. But Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He masquerades as the good guy. He seeks to blind men's minds to the truth of God's word. He twists truth or he mixes just enough truth truth with falsehood so that it seems palatable. Careful, college students. Careful what you hear in your classrooms. Be careful, high school students, maybe even middle school students, mixing just enough truth with error so that it seems palatable. It's one of his schemes. Satan likes to instill doubts in the minds of believers and to tempt them to question the validity of God's goodness. You ever been tempted to question God's goodness? Boy, that's a scheme of Satan. That's a cunning, crafty way to undercut your hope in God. That's what he did to Eve, was it not? Is God really good to you? He flaunts sensuality. Stores in the mall, magazines as you check out at the grocery store, TV, billboards, radio, movies, sitcoms. I mean, we, we call what is evil good and what is good evil. We're, we're there. He encourages the harboring of bitterness and the withholding of forgiveness. You hear this morning and you're harboring some bitterness or some anger. That's a scheme of the devil. He would love to create division and dissension in your relationships, especially within the body of Christ. Matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, We forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. One of his designs is that you would harbor bitterness and unforgiveness, and there'd be division in all your relationships, especially within the body of Christ. There's some of his schemes. The 17th century pastor and Puritan, William Gernall wrote an expansive treaty on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. He called it the Christian's full armor. It was a a massive volume. As a matter of fact, three volumes, and it includes more than 1,250 some odd pages. And within its pages, Gernall reveals Satan's craftiness as to when and how he oftentimes attacks believers. Let me give you a few of those. You want to know when and how? We're talking about the the crafty one, the serpent, the schemer, the the deceiver. When and how does he attack believers? Uh, Let me give you just a few. He loves to attack when a Christian is newly converted. He loves to attack when a Christian is newly converted, like a lion in the wild that that seeks to pick off the easy prey. So Satan will oftentimes attack those who are young in their faith. Brothers and sisters who are more mature in the faith, we need to be mindful of those who are younger in the faith. Let's be discipling them. Let's come alongside them and help them walk in their relationship with Christ. We don't want to leave them out there in the open plains where they can be easily picked off. How about when a Christian is afflicted or suffering? Boy, Satan will come in at that point. When all is well, we oftentimes lack thankfulness and we forget about God's sustaining grace. But when a Christian goes through times of affliction, which we all will, it's not if but when, we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. When a Christian goes through times of affliction, Satan is oftentimes nearby and he's quick to suggest that God has abandoned you. He's abandoned you and that you really don't belong to him because if you really did belong to him, you wouldn't be going through that. Again, he... It causes you to doubt God's goodness and the validity of his grace. Satan would love to have you and me believe that our trials must be evidence that we've been cut off from God and that he never was for us, and if he was, he certainly isn't now. Some of you have probably read John Bunyan's wonderful, masterful work, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, I would highly commend it to your short list of books to read. Paul Bunyan's, or John Bunyan, rather, Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan had an incredible ability to take spiritual truths and to write them in in an allegorical way, in an an allegorical story that clearly portrays the gospel true conversion and the Christian life. Chapter 4 of Pilgrim's Progress, the main character of the story, Christian, is traveling through the Valley of Humility when he encounters Apollyon, Satan, in Pilgrim's Progress. And in the exchange that takes place there in the Valley of Humility, Apollyon, or Satan, tries to convince Christian that suffering is a sure sign that God has abandoned his people. Listen to what Apollyon says, written by Bunyan. These are the words of Satan so clear here. Consider gain in cold blood. What you're likely to encounter in the way you've chosen You know that for the most part, his followers, that's God's followers, suffer reproaches and perils and weariness, stripes, stonings, imprisonment, pain, and death, all because they oppose me, Apollyon, and my kingdom. Think about how many of them have been put to horrible death. And your master, your master, he's never come from his mysterious, invisible, exalted dwelling place to deliver them. Doubting God's goodness. thats What he's encouraging here. And you count his service better than mine? Not many of my servants have ever been martyred. All the world knows very well that I deliver, whether by power or by fraud, those who have followed me. And be sure that I will deliver you. Listen to how a Christian responds here. When he, God, for a time, does not deliver his servants from trouble, it is for their good, Romans chapter 8, by the way, It strengthens their faith and their love for what is right and it affords them an opportunity to show the sincerity of their love and add to their rewards. As for the death you speak of, it is only temporary. He, God, delivers His servants out of death and gives them perfect life beyond. His servants do not expect immediate deliverance from the petty dangers and discomforts of this present perishing world, but they are willing to wait on the Lord, knowing full well that they shall be more than rewarded for their sufferings when He comes in all His glory and with all His holy angels." How about when the Christian has achieved some notable success? We're tempted there, are we not? must be very careful when we're recognized or honored or esteemed. In these moments, Satan would love to hand you the bottle of sweet pride to drink. And not only will he hand it to you, but he'll encourage you to drink it, and he'll hold the bottom of the bottle up for you. He would love for you to taste sweet success, and in doing so, trust in your own merit. Turn your eyes from Christ. How about when a Christian is idle? We all know the saying idle hands, finish the sentence. Idle hands are the devil's playground. Make no mistake about it. If Satan finds a man or a woman that is inactive, he will soon find some work for them to do. What are you doing to stay busy for Christ? What are you doing to stay busy for Christ that you're not idle? How about when the Christian is isolated from others who share his or her faith? You see, surrounded by the body of Christ, we're in good company, for it's our brothers and our sisters who can encourage us, help us, challenge us, and even call us to account when necessary. But when we're alone or when we're surrounded by non-Christians who don't share our love for the things of God and don't share our hatred for sin, then you can be certain Satan draws near. How about when the Christian... Is dying. Satan would love nothing more than to slip in our last hours and bring discouragement and despair. I think of two incredible ladies, two dear sisters, Patsy Meadows and Peg Pollard. Weak as they were in the flesh, they were warriors in heart and in spirit, standing next to both of them, as a matter of fact, at their hospital beds. They spoke not of fear and hopelessness, but of joy and confidence and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Though I'm sure he tried, Satan was not able to shake these women and to cause them to feel defeated or abandoned. matter of fact, I can can remember standing next to, 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 to Peg's hospital bed singing hymns in the wee hours of the morning. Those precious ladies departed this sin-riddled world and they entered into the next. They did so with their eyes fixed on Christ. Think about the words of the song that we sang this morning. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. You're in the power of Christ, I stand. Friends, be strong in God's strength. Be protected by God's armor. Be knowledgeable about your enemy. He's powerful. He schemes. He's evil.